0: back to Seattle Sucks, a podcast about hating the city we love. It's me, Colin. I'm here with Greg and Brian, and we are feeling just incredibly stimulated right now.
1: Yeah, stimulated. That's right, Colin. Uh, We have been collectively, with the entire country, stimulated. (laughs) (laughs) As of, uh, what, 5 o'clock PST, we're all going to remember where we were. (laughs) <laughs> the day that the life-saving $600, you know, checks uh were signed by President Donald Trump. Yeah, the big the big boy caved, man. Well, yeah, he caved for the big 600, zero zero. very exciting. <laughs> yeah, he caved. Uh he went on vacation. He made his big stand. Uh he was going to be the the you know, populist hero or whatever. I for once I was like, "You know what?" Trump is my president. I was like, I was like, more years. I I looked at Greg right in the eyes. I said, I'd vote for this man a third time. (laughs) uh, (laughs) But yeah, uh, no, for once I was like, you know what? His, his desire to be loved, his narcissism, it's finally going to come through for us. uh, Cause he wants to sign those checks. And he remembered the last time they signed the checks that everybody liked him for a little bit. And uh, he thought he was going to get to do it again. And uh, I was like, he's going to hold out. He's going to hold out for the $2,000. So he
2: did that in a a tantrum and was then mere days later talked into signing the bill anyway. Like just Mm -hmm. such
1: a weak pussy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, well, very funny that the Democratic Party, too, that knew you know, two months ago, that he wanted two thousand dollars checks. Uh, also, didn't play the political game of using that to essentially yeah. demonize or put pressure on the Republican Senate. Uh, you know, to their pol- you know to the political advantage of the Democratic Party, right? To make them look foolish. In fact, to make them look foolish before a national election that I was told was the only thing standing between us and fascism itself—the ugly face of nineteen thirties German fascism. And uh, the Democratic Party chose not to do that. Very interesting that they chose that. Um, And it is, you know, so we we have some facts in front of us. One, that, you know, apparently Trump could be pushed on the $2,000 thing all the way back in October. Another fact is that Joe Biden apparently personally intervened to lower the amount that Democrats are asking for from twelve hundred to six hundred because he said that would be irresponsible or, you know, uh, outside uh, the sort of realm of compromise, good compromise and whatnot. And that, you know, in, according to his people, and apparently according to some Democrats in the House and the Senate, uh, Joe Biden really was the motivating force by getting Democrats behind $600 checks. Uh, as they said, it, his support for it allowed them to essentially not care <laughs> about the the blowback from the $600 checks. Yeah. And then we have, uh, Greg found a wonderful editorial. Uh, then we have the comments from Joe Biden's economic advisor who also we know this guy is legit because he was also the economic advisor uh, to Barack Obama uh, in 2008. Uh, he also was an economic advisor to Bill Clinton. He also was uh, one of the guys, one of the uh, Harvard boys that went to Russia to you know help their economy out in the 1990s. Uh, also a close personal friend of Jeffrey Epstein, but Larry Summers. Mr. Lawrence Summers. <laughs> yeah. Came out on Bloomberg uh, to lambast the idea of $2,000 checks as just plainly irresponsible and bad politics. And Greg, you found this uh, wonderful editorial from where we, he, wanted to, he wanted to make it clear. Uh, people online might be confusing what I said because it was in a TV interview. I on TV on Bloomberg w- television, yeah. And when he was talking to Bloomberg uh, on you know their little TV show, he basically said, you know, that, you know, we have to have a limiting principle and the limiting principle is that it overheat the economy. And then he even elaborate on that saying, quote, I'm not even sure I'm so enthusiastic about the $600 checks going on to call the $2,000 ones irresponsible, basically saying, look, the principle is if we put that money in your pocket, it's going to overheat the economy because you'll spend it. And uh, then I don't know question mark inflation. I guess uh, bad things might happen. So you might say, "What does he mean? Overheat the economy? What is is he even talking about? We need the money." Brian, I'll (laughs) tell
2: you why. What does he really mean by like heating up the economy too much? He says because of the legislation passed in 2020, meaning the earlier stimulus and unemployment expansion and stuff like that. Total household income, which takes no account of the stock market has exceeded normal levels relative to the economy's potential more or less since the pandemic began. Without new stimulus, things would have normalized in 2021. So what's he saying there? Relative, so house total household income. First of all, he's talking about a total. He's talking about a fucking aggregate here. Mm -hmm. So leaving out the people who, like, doesn't matter what the aggregate is if you're literally just unemployed
1: yeah but also forget about that for a minute we'll leave it out the fact that uh we live in a wildly unequal society income is distributed uh in extremely unequal ways yeah
2: we're start coming from a starting point of wild incredible inequality where income at the top and wealth at the top you know dwarfs Uh, the middle and the bottom, and we have massive poverty. So going into this, we're going into an economic downturn where already at the start of it, we have huge numbers of mass, we have mass poverty in this country, okay? Mm. People living on the brink, people who don't have money for a $400 emergency, who are living uh, paycheck to paycheck, who are always behind on rent. Now we know at this point that he's writing this yesterday. We know out you know tens of thousands of people are months back on their rent highest unemployment we've had since the depression we
1: know despite the fact that they're propping up the stock market the economy mm. is collapsing basically 80 million people basically are gonna drop into poverty essentially yeah, yeah. but what he's saying <clears throat> is aha but but that
2: doesn't matter because total household income has exceeded normal levels relative to the economy's potential. But you might say, Brian, Colin, (laughs) the economy's potential is shit.
3: He acknowledges
2: (laughs) in this piece that we are in a major economic downturn. What he must then be saying here is that as the tumbling, already unequal economy (coughs) tumbles down and contracts, Household in we can't allow it's like we can't allow regular household income levels to grow as a share of that economy. Yeah. So while everyone else might be saying, but Larry, people are dying. People are starving. People are being made homeless by the thousands because we were already living on the edge. He's saying, no, 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 no. You don't No, no, no. look at the numbers here those people's income on average have not changed as a as a relative factor in the overall strength of the weakening economy Th- that's how, and that's how it should be that's good he's saying that's that's fine no so what this means is there's no floor to misery in the economic logic of neoliberalism there's no floor people are already starving economy shrinks well then those people should die yeah that is what he is saying this is. Think about the enormous disconnect this represents. Of someone shouting up at Larry Summers, going, "People are starving. They're literally going to die. They're going to be kicked out of their homes." And him going, "Like, yeah, I know that, but look, the economy is shrinking. So, yeah, the, obviously that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. That's just part of that's just part of life. That's just part of the nature of the economy. That's how it must be. We can't interfere with that. Yeah. And then you would you might ask why, Brian, Colin, <laughs> why why can we not interfere with that? I don't know, Greg. Why can't we interfere with well, it? Well, he doesn't fucking spell it out here, but <laughs> it would be easy to imagine, like, I mean, Larry Summers, deeply evil man, like, all nearly, a, he's nearly twirling a mustache behind a cape in this fucking mm-hmm. uh, op-ed here. But, like, I think just immiserating people, while it probably does give him, like, libidinal pleasure, um, you know, is in service of a larger thing to these people, and it is about power it's a political mm-hmm. question
1: yeah yeah basically what he's saying is if you were to increase the economic power of the you know to use uh, the uh the lower quintiles of our society right so if you were to increase the economic power of the working class uh that would also potentially increase the political power of the working class and, and po- necessarily we're talking about ratios here yeah so it, like it would decrease necessarily decrease the, the power of the capital power class. of the capital class yeah and when it comes to this, it's important to look to what Larry Summers and his ilk did when they were in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, they have this great quote from, uh, you know, uh, Bruce Gale, where he says, you know, we need to rehabilitate the vipers and the bloodsuckers in the society, right? And they basically set their economic policy along the goals of consciously creating a capitalist class. And what that meant was, vastly is immiserating hundreds of millions of people, right? Driving them into the most desperate poverty, decreasing the life expectancy for men by 20 years within the space of a decade. Uh policies that, you know, the Lancet basically said probably killed a million people over the course of 10 years. Uh But they did that because they had to drive wealth upwards, right? They had to take it from all these people. They had to drive it upwards to create this capitalist class, right? They had to empower them, you know, that this is a political project. You could say, well, it's just about money. It's just about theft. But that's not really giving them enough credit. They were building something. They're building something to last. And even though it it kind of got out of their hands at the end. a
2: political project. Yeah it's a legacy of anti-communism fucking sick freaks like larry summers were found in the world and cultivated to grow into positions of power so they could do these things so they could wreck our lives you know and it's just astonishing that like you don't even have to like connect the dots of like look what's happening now and look back and what what happened after the fall of the soviet union russia where they like it's the same fucking people larry summers is literally here fucking yeah Larry like Summers yelling at spit dribbling spittle
1: out of his fucking hundred-year-old <laughs> face, like well, the same guy who orchestrated Obama's response to the 2008, you know, financial was
2: put before a firing squad. <laughs> exactly, ever. that
1: never happened. Yeah. So things he Larry, isn't dead. Yeah, and things that Larry Summers was responsible for, the largest destruction of black wealth in this country since the destruction of the Reconstruction Bank, right. He was responsible for the largest uh, eviction and uh, repossession crisis in American history. He was also responsible for an economy that over the course of the Obama administration, 95% of the economic gains went to the top 1% of earners. Uh, by the end of the Obama administration, almost all his gains and job growth and stuff were to minimum wage service jobs and then to the new gig economy, right? this is what Larry Summers built, right? It's what he built in Russia. It's what he's built under the Obama administration. I'm sorry. At this point, if you're getting very excited about Biden and things changing, uh, fucking stop. You're an idiot. You're a rube. Look who's in charge. Be smart. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Well, um, (laughs) good
2: luck to Biden. Yeah. Uh, good luck to him selling this, this shit over I'm not saying they won't succeed but he's not going to have the fucking he's not going to be beloved like Obama after Mm -hmm. after he's done he will be one of the most hated presidents in American history yeah it won't matter Mm -hmm. they'll still probably get away with all of it
1: yeah Uh, but people's opinions of Warren G. Harding and stuff like that really are moot to the point that he transferred a lot of money to a lot of people (laughs) to the right people right Uh, and yeah, I mean Biden will go down as a figure like that, but in the end, He's what, our Yeltsin. Yeah, what's that going to mean to you when you're getting your ass fucking evicted? Yeah, Yeltsin is one of the most hated men in Russia, but it didn't change anything that happened.
4: You no, know? He still won.
1: Yeah, he got away <laughs> yeah. with it all. Yeah, he, he, he turned his family he into one of the wealthiest he... families in the country. Yeah, uh, you know, the only thing that lost, you know, for Yeltsin was his heart. Everything else won repeatedly. It held on long enough, man. Yeah so yeah it's uh and that's gonna be biden man dark days
2: yeah very dark days i don't
1: know is there i
2: oh god i mean could can it possibly get any darker colin
0: (laughs) oh yeah it gets darker all the time Well, as we know, democracy dies in darkness, so we thought that we would take <laughs> a look at our own venerable print institution, the Seattle Times, and oh. the amazing, incredible, aristocratic Bleden family.
2: Oh, I mean, is, is there anything that prompted uh, this desire, Colin, nigh uh, on the new year?
0: Well, yeah. Like, two weeks ago, we... We got a weird package at the marina, and we always get a lot of fan mail, but this was a little bit odd. Inside, it was like this old, worn manuscript that was covered in like uh, black and green film, like a slime. Upon further inspection, we discovered that we we think it might be a lost manuscript of Ambrose J. Hogue. He's known as the Mad Professor and disappeared without a trace in 1928. Wow. Yeah, okay. pretty pretty wild stuff.
2: Yeah. You've piqued my interest, Colin.
0: So we have a team of specialists authenticating what appears to be an attempted history of the city of Seattle by Dr. Hoag, and we want to share with you a chapter Hoag had written on Times' as media mogul, Alden Bleden. Now, the manuscript is incomplete, but we feel strongly that it has obvious historical value. Brian, you've been authenticating this chapter, right?
1: uh yeah colin and i gotta tell you it's uh it's very exciting stuff and uh i'm gonna be here to help try and give some some context to the narrative
0: well thank you and greg you don't know anything about this either right
1: uh
2: no colin i had to work 12 hours the week before last so (laughs) i haven't had any time to read uh any mysterious manuscripts that come to the marina sorry
0: (laughs) well okay i guess we'll just dive right in The title, A Study of the Life and Times of Alden Bleden. Alden Bleden first came to my attention when I was but a young man in October of 1900. Mr. Bleden filled an entire page of his newspaper, the Seattle Daily Times, with his account of a three-day Chamber of Commerce cruise up the Washington coast to Port Townsend. It is a lurid account of prostitution and vice that is hardly worthy of the label journalism. But still, it left me curious about the city's newest prospective newspaper tycoon. Mr. Bleden had likely found his way on that debauched vessel due to his spirited defense of Seattle's honor in the newspaper wars of 1898, where Tacoma papers promoted false accounts of European dukes and barons flocking to Tacoma rather than Seattle as a launch point for their great gold expeditions in the Alaskan wilds. Fighting fire with fire. Bleden promised the chamber that he will pound the life out of those whelps in Tacoma and pound the life out of Tacoma's efforts at false promotion. He did helping to set Seattle on track to be Washington's first city. Still the chamber must've bristled at Mr. Bleden's recording of their cruise, as there is silence surrounding all the group's future journeys out to sea.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, it's probably hard to know from today's sort of vantage point because uh, Seattle's uh, opinion of Tacoma is so low (laughs) and, uh, you know, just the, the way things have shaken out. But there actually was a time when it appeared that Tacoma might be the major city in Washington on the, you know, sort of Western seaboard, right? Like this idea that Seattle would become the major city and Tacoma would just be the place that stinks that we make fun of. Uh, that was not a, a, fa- a known fact at the time. And uh, I guess it's good to hear that Alden was you know, out there fighting the good, the good fight for Seattle's superiority.
0: <laughs> a real sliding doors moment. Wasn't Tacoma going to be the capital, possibly?
2: I think like every city in most oh, mm. Western states was going to be the capital. <laughs> until someone was murdered, yeah. a building was burned down, the records were stolen,
0: you know.
1: Well, and interesting, like Tacoma, apparently one of the things that really uh, fucked Tacoma up was that it was a uh, one railroad baron town whereas Seattle was like a two railroad baron town and because it had these like really strong company town aspects, it actually kind of like strangled its growth like going into the 1890s and there is this period where, seattle and tacoma their growth is almost neck and neck and then seattle just really pulls away like in the late 1890s and at least that's sort of the official historian's response is that tacoma kind of like you know it's company town has strangled it so i guess luckily we had two railroad barons fighting each other in our town cool (laughs) yeah cool stuff and i did find this uh account he has of this chamber of commerce journey and uh Let's just say a Bellingham, you know, Chinese laundryman gets dumped off a wheelbarrow into the water by some of Seattle's finest residents. Uh, prostitutes are purchased. Fun is had. I don't think I got to agree with our, our friend, Mr. Hogue here. I don't think that uh, Alden was supposed to be posting this. He's a poster <laughs> who got too excited. <laughs> We've all been there, though. Yeah, indeed we you, have. you're hanging with the boys and you do a bad post. We get it.
0: I never do bad posts. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Little is known about Alden Bleden's early life. He is said to have hailed from somewhere around the seaside town of Potowanket, Maine, but the exact date and location of his birth is unknown. Arriving in Seattle in 1896, Mr. Bleden bought a local newspaper concern with a stake of $25,000.
1: Yeah. So he bought, uh, the Seattle uh, Press Times, as it was called at the time, in Seattle. I think when he purchased that, probably had like two major newspapers. But certainly by the time he like got really into the, uh, you know, the the sort of meat of the early days of Seattle Times, like 1900, 1910. There's about four papers in the city, you know, that you can consider like regular newspapers. And uh, the Seattle Times, what Bleden did, his like innovation was he's like put giant pictures all over it, less text, more pictures. Classic. and salacious make it way more salacious nice so he was basically like the tabloid fucking guy <laughs> of his time which is very funny because the Seattle times i think now because there's to be a very respectable uh newspaper but it basically was just a salacious tabloid, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which gave rise to other i mean the seattle star also uh came into existence about that time essentially with a similar uh style and stuff but yeah
0: well, I guess we can hope it might return to its roots in 2021.
1: Yeah, could you imagine that the Seattle Times just posted a bunch of bullshit, like half of it, not true.
2: Yeah, uh, just to like all just salacious crime stories designed yeah. to like give <laughs> suburban <laughs> Seattle a libidinal thrill. Yeah, weird. That'd be crazy.
0: <laughs> well, we'll see. Apparently in his late 40s, Alden was a short, stocky man, arrogant and quick tempered. He took a high-handed role at his newspaper where he poured over every article, putting his mark on the journal. He liked the nickname Colonel, though none <laughs> knew where he had obtained it.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. He's a colonel guy? Yep. Oh, my. That is a very special breed of American.
1: Yeah. My hilariously, I think I have told Greg this before. My grandfather was a colonel guy. And he, <laughs> That's so, a, that story is so funny. Yeah. He was a self-appointed colonel. You know, maybe we'll save this for a Thanksgiving episode.
0: Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah.
1: He, he was a self-appointed colonel in an Indiana militia unit. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> uh. Oh,
0: my God. If he had any military experience, he did not speak of it. Still, he lived an active lifestyle like that promoted by President Roosevelt in the new century. Locals reported watching Blevin swim in the sound for hours in the evenings, praising his natural ability and stamina for a man of his age.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, people get have to remember this is the time when, like, for the very first time in human history, people were like, maybe humans should, like, exercise at all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad
0: we got over that phase. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) Uh, He was not a particularly religious man, showing the skepticism of a man of the modern scientific era. Through his newspaper columns, he would rail against the likes of the Reverend Mark Matthews and mock the holy rollers of Edmund Creffield all the way up to Creffield's murder in 1906.
1: Still- so, so, well, hold on. We, we should probably pause for just one second. So, Mark Matthews is this hilarious character with, like, really long hair and apparently looked like the Slender Man, essentially. He was, like, 6'3 at a time when the average height of a person in Seattle was 4'5". And, uh... In every depiction of him, uh, which is all just cartoons and newspapers, he is depicted as the, like, I think one of them, he literally is just a spider, but it's depicted <laughs> as a spider like creature. And, but he ran the most popular Protestant church for like upper middle class Protestants in the city. And uh, they used to do like poor marches through Skin Road and stuff uh, to, to look at the shade the boars uh he was also a big um seattle is the gateway to the east and will be you know the new york city of the west coast kind of guy too really important like political figure uh kind of funny that like bledin would shit on him all the time uh and edmund Crefield was just a creep who was like who created this like weird holy rollers uh cults where they like spoke in tongues and shit oh He apparently had come up from Portland to preach his new gospel in Seattle, uh, which, of course, had people all up in arms. And one day when he was downtown, he just walked out of a store and somebody walked up next to him and just shot him right in the fucking head and walked off. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. Crazy stuff. Good Lord. All right. Still, rumors of orders and societies followed Bleden as they do all prominent men. A local purveyor of esoteric mysticism, Simone the Apple Polisher, once confided in a colleague of ours that... Wait. Uh, I'm sorry. The, the text is too damaged. I, I can't make out the rest of it. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, it. you know, this is the thing about historical documents, uh, especially ones in this condition, is, you know, we try and salvage as much as we can, but unfortunately things are missing um i know one of uh one of simone the apple polisher's young apprentices had left behind a historical document that we included on mechanical freak at one point as part of our just general you know interest in the history of the city uh but yeah you know, the Apple Polisher, a very interesting character uh in the world of uh, seattle politics and uh you know esoteric studies to be sure
0: well, I, I guess I think I, I found a spot where it, where I can read it again. So let's just let's just start there. Okay. Um, oh, okay. Alden was no friend of Herman Titus, and certainly no friend of socialism or its acolytes, which is why it struck me as strange to see the Times suddenly change streams on the free speech issue and upbraid Mayor Moore seemingly in Titus's defense. At the height of the arrests of socialist speakers, Bleden himself had summarized the situation. The doctrines of socialism are not an issue. No tenet of Marxian theory is involved. The right of free speech is not threatened, nor are the liberties of the people imperiled. It is simply a question of whether a little crowd of notoriety seekers shall do as they please on the streets of Seattle, or whether the police shall have something to say.
1: So, yeah. So, again, uh, back in the early days of posting... In the 1900s, right? Hmm. The way you posted was you would get a box, you'd set it down on a street corner, and you just start yelling at everybody who went by. Now Greg <laughs> still does this to this day, but Honestly, uh, it, it's pretty cool. It's gone out of style a little bit. Oh, so you say. And this guy Herman Titus, uh, let me see if there's a way I can put this into ways people understand. He was like a member of DSA who uh, had a tiff with another member of DSA <laughs> and decided to do his own thing, blowing up the previous group. <laughs> Right. Uh, if you can imagine, the socialists had a little bit of a split. And uh, Herman Titus was uh, one of the local socialist newspaper editors. And he decided, in order to get his following back, and ironically, what ended up happening was he left Seattle to go cover a court case of like, a, you know, some labor leaders being tried. And somebody essentially, while he was gone, like swooped up all of his readership and stuff. Basically, was like, "Yeah, fuck that guy. I got like the real message right here." And so when he came back, he was really mad about this, and Absolutely. he decided to take up the free speech issue, which was basically uh, sometimes when you go into a street corner and you'd start preaching socialism, <laughs> this weird thing would happen where the cops would come out and uh, start cracking your fucking head and and uh, dragging your ass to jail. And so he decided. Well, when I do that, I get a lot of likes on my posts. So I'm just going to keep doing that. So he would go out and he would like make big announcements. I'm going to go out today at 5 o'clock uh, at this corner and give a speech. And people would get really excited. Uh, and then he would just get his head cracked in and dragged off to jail. <laughs> and it created a big, what was called the free speech fights uh, at the time. So we're looking at, I think, like 1906 or seven.
0: Man, this country and this city sure do rock. <laughs> it's weird how things change over time, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Having blithely reported a socialist order invites arrest by the police and the invitation is very gratefully accepted in his own paper, it was strange now to see Mr. Bleden urging the Times' not insignificant mass of subscribers to find common cause with Dr. Titus and his condemnation of the city jail, dubbed Seattle's a black hole by the newspapers.
1: Yeah, there was a uh, shut down the jail movement (laughs) in Seattle, (laughs) even at that time. But uh, yeah, weirdly, uh, Bledham overnight switched positions on the whole Titus thing, where he was very much rooting for the cops to beat the shit out of him, to all of a sudden thinking that he was a real free speech warrior, (laughs) that (laughs) that we should all back.
0: (laughs) A more cynical reading might find Bledham's improbable turn on this matter to be the bitter fruit of his feud with Mayor William Moore. Whatever his intentions and whatever harm Bleden was able to do to Mr. Moore's chances for re-election, the arrival of the bubonic plague in Seattle a week after Titus's trial completed the job. The arrival of the Black Death, the great pestilence of the Orient, and the slayer of medieval Europe in Seattle provided an easy election victory to the Republican, John Miller.
1: Yeah, and so... uh Bleden was a little upset with Moore for cracking down on Vice in the city, uh, because Bleden might or might not have owned some interests <laughs> in, in these stakes. Uh, yeah. But yeah, uh, Seattle had a bubonic plague outbreak. <laughs> close <Classic. laughs> early history. Yeah, I mean, who hasn't? Yeah. <laughs> to be fair,
0: <laughs> along with Moore, the plague wiped away many of Moore's allies. The city health board was eliminated and replaced with a larger and better-funded public health department with Dr. James Crichton at its head. Crichton, the longtime city council member for Queen Anne and off-and-on acting mayor during the gold rush years, was a friend of Mr. Blevin, who he praised on the new health chief in the pages of his paper. Shortly after assuming this position, Dr. Crichton assured Mr. Blythin and his readers that, "...I intend to get after this city in a way that will make people sit up and take notice." I intend to make Seattle clean from the waterfront to Lake Washington and from Fremont to the south city limits. A real rain going to come. <laughs> if I make an enemy of every man, woman, and child in the entire city. And the sooner the people come to understand this department means business, the better it will be for all.
1: Yeah, a real head cracker, if you will. A real progressive era guy, you know. Uh, a real Dr. Fauci. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Crichton, again, an interesting character. Uh, probably did more to, like, shape the city. Maybe there's, like, two or three other people in the city that, like, are more responsible for the actual, like, physical layout of the city than uh, James Crichton. Yet you never hear about him, you know. Just sort of an interesting character. But one no of the streets more... streets named after him. What's that? There's no streets named after yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And one of the more interesting things about him is... He, yeah, he lived in Queen Anne and was like the rep for Queen Anne forever. But uh, he basically would be appointed mayor every time a Seattle mayor skipped town to go to Alaska to try and find gold, which was a lot. <laughs> so basically, he would like elect a mayor, and then a month later, they'd be like... Uh, Yeah, I'm just going to use the money I got from being mayor and go to Alaska late. (laughs) (laughs) And you would basically have to go fill in as mayor. (laughs) The 1890s rocked.
0: (laughs) So unfortunately, I can't make out the rest of the text here, but uh, Dr. Hoke does include a map of the city from 1908. Over it appears to be some hand-drawn symbols, but I, I can't quite make them out.
2: I only minored in symbology. But even I have not seen anything yeah. like this. I mean, it would take weeks of study to try and
1: yeah, decipher this. The arcing circles, the almost claw-like sort of lines going across them. Uh, I mean, this, this right here could be a bit
2: of, of scuffed cuneiform, but then this yeah. is more like
1: uh, some kind of incomprehensible hieroglyphic. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, it goes from symbolic almost to language. It's,
0: it's, it's a mystery. Oh, oh, wait, wait, what? What about this? It's it's the Sublime Cool S. <laughs> <laughs> That's Universal, baby. <maybe. laughs> we should have, you know, when they shot that film right in the
1: space. We have done that.
0: <laughs> so I must stress again that what we have of this manuscript it's it's not complete. And we're doing our best to restore the damaged pages. So I'm, I'm just going to pick up again where I can make it out. So, okay. It seems that I can go no further with my discussion of Alden Bleden and his newspaper without mentioning its vigorous championing of modern science. A great appreciation of the new science can be found regularly in its pages.
1: See? I mean, they were always believing in science at the same Hell time. yeah. So that's that's good. I mean, that's something the city can be proud
0: of. Alden Bleden or... fucking loves science. <laughs> A 1911 article on the great work of the Carnegie Institution, a philanthropic organization of great renown on on issues of public health, states, the yet (laughs) all-important study of eugenics (laughs) has been undertaken on the most thorough scale, and already data of prime importance for the wise direction of humanity's propagation in the future have been established.
1: Yeah, um... (laughs) The Times was really into eugenics, um, (laughs) which, you know, uh, we now call eugenics the immortal science. Uh, But then we have to know that that was cutting-edge stuff uh, promoted by, you know, uh, local, or not local, but like millionaires who created these institutions uh, that would give like public health advice, you know? Like, I mean, the millionaire might be like rich in some like new technology in the era, like railroads or something, or steel, uh, but they would go ahead and give their benevol- <laughs> beneficence and their uh, benevolence to us in the form of, you know, creating these institutions that could tell us how to live our lives. That could tell us about like you know good healthcare practices, uh, things like that. You know,
2: but we've learned from that since because of the horrors that this period produced. Uh, they now help us produce our podcast. Uh, yeah, uh, we exactly. call them the freaks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not quite supermen, but they're doing great work. They tried. They're okay. super in my book. <laughs> <laughs> A similar article praising the great work at the prestigious Eugenics Records Office at Cold Spring Harbor can be found in 1912. We can only secure racial improvement by breeding from the most moral, the most intellectual, and the most highly developed physical units. While preventing the propagation of scrubs and degenerates in each and every succeeding generation, at the eugenics. Yeah,
1: <laughs> well, that I saw uh, one always like to uh, look my wife in the eyes and ask, "Are you? Do you truly believe that you're the most moral, most intellectual, <laughs> and most highly developed physical unit?" <laughs> yeah, I think we're all out. I don't think any of us are having kids.
2: <laughs> the absolute. Come physical check out unit. my highly developed physical <laughs> unit,
3: y'all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> at the Eugenics Records Office, which Dr. Charles Davenport has established at Cold Spring Harbor, it is possible for any young man or woman to obtain, free of charge, from the highest authorities of heredity in this country, advice as to the hereditary consequences of a possible marriage mating
1: yeah, so again, I mean, we're talking about the past. The past is, you know, another country, as is famously said. Um, so it's a little hard for people from our vantage point to understand what's happening. But what could happen was if you wanted to, if you're interested, you could uh, mail to this office, you can mail them information that you might have on hand about your family or whatever, and they would mail back to you information about your germplasm and whatnot like you know what your uh, origins are what your roots are you know information about what we call now our genetic heritage and stuff like that so uh and they could tell you
2: if you you know m- married the girl next door provided they had their information it sounds like they could tell you whether you would pr- produce a uh, little uber mention or mm-hmm. uh, more f- more ghastly freaks like the bleven family had
1: yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, just an important service that was provided at the time, and we just don't really have, like, much familiarity with these kind of services today. But, yeah, you know. it'd be so weird. Yeah, I mean, it would seem borderline, borderline yeah. irresponsible.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, race science is truly a thing of the past.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I do love how this has a sort of animal husbandry tinge to the um, uh, to the text here too.
1: Funny you would mention that column because uh, the original journals that all the original uh, like race science pieces in the United States we were publishing were animal husbandry journals. <laughs> <laughs> Literally every article was like, "Hey, we breed horses, right?" <laughs> and then would be <laughs> top ten human races to breed. <laughs>
0: damn well we fucked up we could have had like really cool little tiny people or something that yeah, could add horsemen by now yeah you know, i'm
2: sapiens you know, from what i'm hearing here like they're really leaving money on the table this is really the the, the coward eugenicists way out right because they're talking about all the good benefits of you know breeding the best people but you know, what good is that until you get rid of the bad ones?
0: Mm -hmm.
3: (laughs) Exactly.
1: Exactly.
0: An editorial in that same year excoriates those that would deny the great work of science in the face of modern national degeneration. Every demagogue finds a following. Every fool collects adherence. Everybody harps upon his rights and rebels against every limitation of his arbitrary desires by law or custom. Everybody tries to escape from the compulsion of discipline and to shake off the burden of duty. A mean, cowardly egoism, which is pleasantly dubbed sovereignty of the personality, <laughs> smothers public spirit. The sense of national solidarity, energetic patriism, patriotism, self-sacrifice for the common weal, is becoming a rarity, while anti-militarism, anti-patriotism, and twaddle about the theory of anarchism abound. For the degenerate individuals themselves, there can be no restoration, and but little can be done to improve their state. No human power is able to transmute the bad organic material of which the degenerate is built into good material. His heredity is his fate. The only hope that remains for him is that he may not transmit his malady undiminished to posterity. The best that could happen would, of course, be that he should have no posterity.
1: Yeah, and so this was an article responding to those that were, uh, you know, ambivalent or maybe even antagonistic to the new sciences. You know, to people who just weren't believing in science enough. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I I think it's very good when you answer this, people have a strong, you need a strong response to that, right?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, we have incels. I guess they're talking about calm cells. <laughs> Mr. Bleden shared with his readers the philosophies of the great thinkers of our era, like Dr. Scott Nearing. Superman is the name he, Nearing, would give to the creatures of his ideal race wonderful beings, like those from whom the ancient Greeks of the classical age loved to trace their descent. Is this from (laughs) Parlor? No, it's from America. (laughs) And warns them of what could be in Seattle. Within the shadow of some of the most prosperous business houses in the city of Seattle, unseen and heretofore unsuspected, there exists a colony of people so poverty-stricken, so wretched, living amid such unsanitary surroundings that their bids fare to be in the Queen City, where property values are the highest and where thousands of people rich in the, this world's goods pass daily, living in damp cellars where the light of day never penetrates, is to be found the submerged 10th of Seattle.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the Seattle Times, you know, they saw this period. I mean, there was a real urban crisis uh, in the Progressive Era. And the Seattle Times, I mean, they really saw themselves as, you know, fighting this crisis. I mean, they were fighting for the soul of Seattle, right? Mm. And, you know, again, hard to imagine from today, but there was lots of urban poverty, you know, just right there. You're saying at the
2: same time that they were going through like a kind of economic boom where there was high real estate values and like Mm -hmm. large businesses making a lot of money.
1: There was also urban poverty. Yeah. There was this very dispiriting thing because while so many people were joining in the economic boom, right, were taking advantage of those economic opportunities there was just, you know, uh, this inexplicable class of poors who insisted on being around the areas where the high real, the, the real estate v- values were increasing the most. And, you know, what can you do with them? Now, the language of the submerged 10th uh, basically refers to the lower 10th of humanity that by this point of the eugenics discussion and the United States meant the part that was to be purged. Now, when I say purged, you know, I don't want you to get frightened, And think of uh, like Hollywood movies like The Purge, right? Or uh, think of anything uh, scary like the horrible things that happened in, uh, you know, other countries, not here, but other countries in the 20th century. What they meant was uh, eliminated from the earth. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, uh, potentially, I mean, obviously, you would do things like uh, castrate them or whatever to keep them from reproducing, but they also suggested things like uh, having mobile trucks that you could put people in the back of, and you would just hook the exhaust up to the back of the truck, and that way they could be easily uh, disposed of, right? in a humane, safe manner, right? as you drive from place to place and just load them up in the back. So um car culture. yeah, car culture, am I right? Yeah, so I mean these chambers of gas very humane, so I don't want people getting excited or scared or whatever, right? Like this was this is very humane stuff that was being, you know, put forward at the time. So, don't worry about it. Cool. And it
2: couldn't you know, no one ever would get an idea like that now. Oh, thank God.
0: Very grim uh thing to come out of the Innovation Advisory Council of that time. <laughs> <laughs> A 1911 interview with the father of our modern technological era, Thomas Edison, gets to the heart of the nefarious influence that the degenerate cosmopolitan, the urban Jew... Uh, I I can't read anymore again. It's, it's too damaged. Um, I'm not really sure where he was going with that. Yeah. So, um,
1: I don't know. I mean, uh, you could probably just... Go to your local library, find uh in the searchable Seattle Times database the interview with Thomas Edison from 1911 and figure out where that whole <laughs> story was going. I don't know. Uh I was gonna do it, but then I I ran into I I I had other things to do. I had a game, so I was I wasn't able to to follow up on that. But uh I, I'm sure nowhere uh terrifying or anything. I'm I'm sure Thomas Edison had only good things to
0: say. <laughs> I think you have to be right. So I I guess we should just move on. Um okay, so All right. Perhaps nothing has added to Mr. Blevins' notoriety more than his role and the role of his newspaper in what became known as the Potlatch Riots of 1913. The Golden Potlatch Festival began on a hot day in July with patriotic speeches delivered by the Secretary of the Navy, among others, to the Chamber of Commerce. Later that night, a Mrs. Annie Miller, a local suffragette, set up a soapbox near Skid Row to proselytize for peace and the woman vote. From the accounts I have gathered, several men coming from the piers, appearing to be sailors, interrupted Mrs. Miller and threatened to strike her if she continued. A fistfight ensued between the sailors and the crowd, with Mrs. Miller making her escape. The next day, Mr. Bleden ran a scathing front-page article headlined, IWW, Denounced by Head of Navy, Attacks Soldiers and Sailors. The article went on to describe a wholly different scene than that which witnesses described above. The sailors were strolling down Washington Street, sober, and conducting themselves. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First up, you you know that this is a very true
1: story where they have you to have specify to in the paper they were sober. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I mean, even today, when you're you do when when sailors are mentioned, you do you, you want to? The reader's going to be asking. Were they sober um, (laughs) or assuming that they were shit faced? So it's actually only natural that he points
1: that out here.
0: So they were sober. We've got that covered and conducting themselves in a gentlemanly manner. Thank you very much. Well, when when the
1: Seattle Times tells me that that's how they're behaving. I know that's how they were behaving.
0: Exactly. When a mob of IWW members saw them and shouted, get them and to hell with the flag before attacking them with not blacks rule <laughs> <laughs> Antifa for Biden. <laughs> oh man. Uh, before attacking them with knives and heavy shoes. The t-
1: <laughs> yeah. The time specifically cited heavy shoes. Uh, I'm just going to say uh, Danish clogs, like wooden clogs. <laughs> <you know. laughs> The Times. Or Sabo. Sa- <laughs> Sabo. <laughs> <It's
2: called>
0: Sabo.
1: <laughs> Hence
0: sabotage. <laughs> the Times concludes their coverage by quoting an anonymous sailor. They, the IWW members, will meet something they never did before. Our men will be armed with everything from bolos to head axes. And we be ready for them. <laughs> the fuck is b- bolos? Okay, this is this is some this is a
2: Facebook meme. This is like a guy laying out his fucking tactical gear. Yeah.
1: Bolos. Uh, it's ex- it's good that right wing nerds aren't so stupid anymore. <laughs> yeah.
2: And also, what in the whole fuck is a head axe? You mean uh, uh, for uh, meaning an axe made to
1: uh, behead someone. I am sure execution. There's probably some dumber explanation, but it I'm going to go town. I'm going to say executioner's axe. now, you know, again, I'm sure our listeners know, but IWW courses, the industrial workers of the world, which was a, uh, explicitly anarchist union that did a lot of labor organizing, particularly among lumber and timber workers, uh, in the area and never started any fights. That's for sure. Well, like good leftists, they were true pacifists who just waited for the head axis to come. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> that night, as if summoned by Mr. Blevin's incantation, a large group, perhaps two thousand strong, and consisting of navy sailors and other men who made their living from the sea, made its way up from the piers to the scene of the previous night's events. Accounts from the event report the group moving sluggishly from one scene of destruction and ruin to the next. Occasionally, a member of the mob would break from the group to point at a bystander and ask, do you read the Seattle daily times? The offices, the offices of the IWW and the various socialist organizations were looted and destroyed before the mob eventually made its way to Shacktown to destroy a gospel mission. Bleden and his paper could hardly contain themselves. The smashing of chairs and tables, the rending of yielding timbers, the creaking and groaning of sundered walls, and above the rest, the crash of glass of the windows all blended together in one grand Wagnerian cacophony. And all the while, the crowd outside just howled and cheered. It was almost more joy than they could stand.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, they're talking about this, uh, I mean, rather like destructive uh, march through the city. Uh, Some might even say a riot. Yeah, exactly. Uh, where they destroyed every left institution that existed or they imagined existed in the area, including uh, the IWW and socialist offices, uh, Socialist Party offices.
0: Eventually, Mayor Cotterill, whom Bleden had condemned as a tolerator of red flag anarchy sought to bring the escalating situation in hand by sending police to surround the building of the Seattle Daily Times with orders that not a single issue of the paper was to break the quarantine for three days.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Cotterill, kind of like everybody in the city, essentially blamed uh, Blethen for this riot.
0: Not without resources of his own, Mr. Blethen had a judge intervene to order an injunction against Mayor Cotterill and the city police. Mayor Cotterill's defense of the siege at the newspaper was interrupted by the judge's repeated questioning, asking over and over again if the mayor read the Seattle Daily Times. <laughs> oh, is that some kind of weird uh like are you a do cop kind of like do you read question, the Seattle or?
1: Daily Times, Colin?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh yes, every day. So Well, they do report. I mean,
1: we we have second and third hand reports. Of the judge's pupil splitting in each eye and side to side as he asked, do you read the Seattle Daily Times? (laughs) That's, you know, wait, that's, that's all second and third hand though. So I'll put it out there, but not confirmed stuff.
0: Yeah. Ultimately the mayor was forced to lift the siege, but the spell had been broken and the golden potlatch was allowed to continue with little additional violence or destruction. Though the riots would prove to be the undoing of the festival, whose 1914 event would be its last.
1: Yeah, w- we used to have like a cool downtown festival and uh, <laughs> this riot basically ended it. Uh, it, wouldn't, it, it the Seafair the would essentially take over for it later, but uh, we used to have a cool thing called Potlatch. Oh, well. Golden Potlatch sounds better. It sounds yeah, way better. Yeah, it was. <laughs> objectively better.
2: Fair, um sucks. There's Ass. no part of it that's good. It's yeah. all very bad.
0: Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. In the weeks following the incidents at the festival, a new offensive was again launched at those residents living south of Skid Road, this time under the banner of the Health Department rather than that of the Navy. Health Commissioner Commissioner Dr. James Crichton ordered the immolation of the 1,200 homes that housed the more than 3,500 residents of Shacktown. Bleden's paper had described the residents of Seattle's slums as utter failures, at the bottommost level to which the human animal can sink larry summers ladies and gentlemen
3: <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> calling,
0: <laughs> calling shacktown a wretched community co- wretched community of animalism the times warned that s- i'm s- i'm not up to my uh,
1: old timey yeah, slurs early 20th
0: century slurs and epithets s- 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 what is this Sawashes
1: which is hilariously apparently a French, uh, uh, misunderstanding of the English calling Indian savages Good and started God. to call them swashes in Canada, That then made its way back into Washington where, uh, literally that is how the daily times called all, like all natives were referred to as swashes. <laughs> wow. God yeah, damn. Cool.
0: Negroes and degenerate whites herd together in these hovels and are producing a race, which someday will be a heavy menace to the city now yeah
1: a- oh sorry I was, I was just gonna say that um weird that there appears to be in their fear mongering and concern over poverty in the city a weird racial element <laughs> in it the entire time that just pokes its head up periodically
2: yeah i mean
1: good thing God times have changed
2: in a post-racial age yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> thanks obama now his <laughs> ally dr creighton was raising these shacks to the ground one of the wretched souls driven from Shacktown by fire and flame would state, This action of the health department is as bad as the dark days of old Ireland when the landlords threw out the tenants. It looks as though the authorities want to drive us off the face of the earth. Mr. Blevin splashed, Shacktown wiped from map across his periodical, writing, After ample arrangements had been made to care for the deserving poor and those ill, the torch was applied, and these miserable,
2: the, d- the deserving poor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> these miserable structures were burned to the ground, thus ridding the city of a slum district more serious than many cities have had to contend with.
2: Yeah. So when they went Does, through, it
1: doesn't mention what uh,
2: percentage of those people were the deserving poor.
1: Yeah. A close reading of uh, the newspapers and stuff at the time appears to uh, reveal. Here, I'm, let me do my calculations. 0% of the people were concerned deserving. <laughs> now, interestingly, when the city went and burned all of these peoples, the poorest people in the city, when they went and burned all their worldly goods, um, it turned out the people didn't vanish with that. Uh, now, some of them, there's these stories of you know, what would eventually become West Seattle. But there's these stories of people on rafts essentially floating over to West Seattle and the people West Seattle being horrified at these people like arriving on their shores <laughs> and like coming up from the shore as the fires are like burning in the background and the, and, you know, being you know, essentially like, Oh no, they've come over here. Uh, you know, probably worth noting that uh, the checks were back within a year because it turns out that, burning everybody's worldly goods uh, doesn't make them wealthier or anything or more bootstrappier, I guess, or whatever dumb thing they thought. Yeah. Well, that's that's locked in their genetic code. There's nothing you can do
3: about that.
2: Yeah, clearly. Your only hope is to deny them a place to fuck and procreate. Yeah, pretty much. It's really about the future, Brian. It's about the future.
0: So we've reached another spot here where I I can't make out what it says but uh, this, last, this last little bit here, I think, is the conclusion for the chapter on Alden Blevin, So let's just finish it, okay? Um, yeah. The summer of 1915 was marked by an unusual rain that lasted through most of the season. As it rained, there was report in the afternoon of July 15th of a black substance in the, in the rain. Some claimed it to be a sign, a dark omen of the coming conflict in Europe. Others speculated about dust storms from the eastern part of the state. A Dr. Ward Phillips at the University of Washington reported in a note in a university journal that a sample of the rain that he had collected revealed the queer material coloring the rain to be spores. Unfortunately, this sample, the only sample of the downpour that I could find record of, appears to be missing from the university, along with Dr. Ward. Amongst these strange atmospheric circumstances, it went unreported that Alvin Bleden had passed at some point during the month of July his paper, which carried his stamp and temperament, was taken over by his son, Clarence Bleden, who arrived in the city shortly after his father's death to tidy up his affairs. A full study of Clarence Blevin should be taken up in the future.
1: Yeah, you know, just arrived on the tides, disappeared with the rain. Wow. It's, it's truly an American story. <laughs> yeah. So, Alden well, Bleden,
2: true hero. That was a fascinating peek into the history of a formative figure in Seattle. It's impo- History is important because it helps you understand how far society has progressed and how there's nothing to learn from the past. Yeah. to, to re- <laughs> uh, We need to reinforce that you mm-hmm. know, sense in ourselves every once in a while. that yeah. There's nothing to learn from the past, that this is all new, we're in uncharted territory, mm-hmm. uh, none of this has ever happened before, and uh, society is just progressing onward changing ever for the better in an inexorable drive toward the future well i see you greg do you read the seattle daily times i do read the seattle daily times <laughs> speaking of you know inexorable change uh did you know that the seattle times is still owned by the Blevin family <gasps> what uh of course the our friends, the Freaks, have been disinherited, but their allegedly human uh, <laughs> brethren, the surface-dwelling Blevins, mm-hmm. still own the paper. It's maybe like the last uh, family-owned uh, major city paper in America, and the current publisher is Frank Blevin Jr. And he is the fourth Blevin to be the publisher, and he's been doing it for thirty-five years now. He what a true patriot of the american dream he's a favorite son of seattle a riser a grinder <laughs> you might ask how does a blethen end up as publisher of the seattle times what led him down that path is he a
1: genius or just a hard worker who rose above mm-hmm. the rest is he uh, a guy who just loves and respects the motherfucking news very possible
2: <laughs> any of these stories are possible but As local idiot Ross Reynolds would tell it on KOW in his 2015 interview with Frank Blevin Jr., then then publisher of the paper for 30 years, he would put it this way, titling this uh, KOW piece, The Accidental Publisher, and introducing it as the unlikely story of how... Frank Blevin Jr. became publisher of the Seattle Times. <laughs> Hell, it's only unlikely
0: yes. because he can't read or write.
1: <laughs> well, we're gonna
0: get to that. Tom. <laughs> we're gonna get to that
1: unlikely story of how child of family moves on to own family business. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know a little backstory.
2: Um, in the mid, you know, in the mid-century, the Blevins had actually farmed out. Uh, the publisher job and the Mm -hmm. running of the paper to other people, to news professionals, Mm -hmm. um, to what they called the literati because they could read. This was, yeah, exactly. (laughs) That stretch came to an end 35 years ago, uh, when Frank Clothin jr. Ascended to publisher of the Seattle times. But let's, let's look at the backstory here. He's a child of a broken home. He was born here in Seattle, but then moved away with his mother to, uh, New Mexico, Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's Arizona. I, I don't know. Uh, Greg, really, by the way,
1: immediately identifying with Frank Lutland. You know, uh,
2: <laughs> he tells us, you know, that he really was unaware of the newspaper until he was in his teenage years. But uh, one year in his late teens, he, he actually came back um, to Seattle to spend a summer with his father, who he describes as kind of a... Uh, uh, shiftless deadbeat um <laughs> it's very unkind to him in the interview actually um and you know he needs something to do so he he gets a job at the local paper the seattle times mm-hmm. for the summer you know and you know upon leaving that at the end of that summer he tells his dad no i'm not gonna keep working at the seattle times uh and he doesn't really think of it um but he, he ends up coming back a few more summers, I think, and just, just, you know, working at the paper in the summer, just as a summer job, you know, maybe, I don't know, did he start in the mailroom? I don't know. Was he was he a paper boy? I doubt it. <laughs> um, so, but then let's let's hear from him about how he initially decided to make a career of it in at the Seattle Times. I'll, I'll just read a quote from him here. He says, I made one of those irrational 21-year-old decisions. I'd been working at the paper summers since I was 15. I started reading the paper. I got to know the people. There's really something special about a newspaper and a family business. I like it being up there in the summer, so maybe I'll give it a try. I was flat broke. I had to borrow money from the Times to move up there to a basement studio apartment on (laughs) Queen Anne. So he's just a kid. Yeah. Nothing. No direction he life, doesn't mm-hmm. know where to go. He's been working at this summer job in this mm-hmm. funny city up in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he just decides, God, I, I, guess, uh, I, I guess I'll try, try and get a full-time job there. Yeah. And then he called up that prospective employer and asked to borrow money to move mm-hmm. across the country
1: yep. and for a down payment on an apartment. I always love, whenever I'm moving, to call the local newspaper concern. And just ask, give me money. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if you know what this, the uh, first and last month's rent looks like, but I don't got it. I, he's,
2: so he says here, I was flat broke. So broke that I had to turn to my familial relations and the major company <laughs> they own
1: to finance <laughs> my uh, big career move. That's <laughs> so, what being broke is to yeah. this asshole. That's so broke that I had to go to the corporation that I owned and borrow from it.
2: <laughs> Well, let's he, let's uh, let's hear a little more from Mr. Blethen here
4: in his own words. And twelve months rolled around, and you know, I was really liking the newspaper and the work and living here. I was still broke, but I decided I would
5: stay. Frank Blethen worked in a series of management jobs at the Seattle Times and connected <laughs> with his cousins who were also working there.
3: Oh, his cousins worked <laughs> there. <laughs> you
5: dedicated yourself uh, professionally to working <clears throat> in the newspaper business, at least initially. Was it sort of predetermined that you would eventually become the publisher?
4: No, probably, probably just the opposite. I always call myself the accidental publisher. I was an average C student. Oh. I didn't know it at the time, but I'm mildly dyslexic as a ADD adult. My school experiences were anywhere from mediocre to bad. <clears throat> you also suffer I from, I never from imposter saw syndrome? As any <laughs> management caliber or anything like that. I just wanted to be, participate. But it was
5: not smooth sailing for Frank Blethen Jr. at his family's newspaper. <laughs> when
4: I was 28, I fucking the boss.
5: The Seattle Times president, Jerry Pennington, was running the paper. He convinced Frank to stay through a series of management jobs before moving him on to the job of publisher. At a blethin owned paper in Walla Walla,
4: My and basically his message was: "This is a great opportunity for you, but even if you screw it up, it's screwed up so bad nobody will notice."
5: But Frank Blethin didn't screw it <laughs> up. It was a, con- a consequence-free kind of opportunity about doing for the same you. Same thing at the Seattle Times.
0: He got banished to Walla Walla.
2: Yeah, so uh, he. So let's see. Borrowed some money to move up there. After a few years, um, after you know, threatening to quit, the publisher. Uh, uh, ha- Puts him through a series of management jobs before <laughs> making him publisher of the Walla Walla Times. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though he's uh, an unremarkable C student with no particular management skills, well, and I also I and, love uh, the little,
1: syndrome. The little extra flavor of yeah, they sent me to Walla Walla to pub- be the publisher of the paper, and they told me, uh, "Don't worry if you do badly <laughs> at this or whatever. There's no consequences for you." <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> Not just because it's a small paper that we barely notice we own, but because you can't fuck up, you own the company.
5: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's continue here. Blethens had hired outsiders like Jerry Pennington to run the Seattle Times. Frank Blethens Jr. asked Pennington for an honest assessment of his prospects.
4: I said, well, what's the highest job you think I can attain professionally at the Seattle Times? And it took him a while to think about it, which told me something else. And he said general manager. And I said, okay, that's interesting. And I'm thinking to myself, well, the general manager is the number three person in the company. So I said, well, Jerry, how long do you think it would take me to get there? No, because I was 32 at the time. And he thought again for a long time. And he said, well, sometime in your early 50s. And then he paused and he said, "And of course, you'll need a really strong financial person and president around you. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, So
5: he's saying 20 years until you get to the third run at the, yeah.
4: at the paper with <laughs> oh a lot of support. Uh, once I once I got this, so I'm thinking to myself, boy, this is interesting. I got I got a hell of a lot to prove to Jerry, and I and I better not get too cocky.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the stakes are high, boys. So, so, so we got to bat it down. The,
2: the news professional <laughs> who uh, had been running the paper, you know. For a paycheck hired by the family was honest with uh frank Blevin said well you're very mediocre but i guess basically this is a guy saying like yeah I, you're i keep having to promote you because it's political yeah. in this company but like let me set your sights low because even though i'll be dead by this time this happens i wouldn't i don't want to see this paper like run by you because you're a mediocre dumb shit.
1: Well, I love because there's there's also two, again, amazing things in there, which is Frank saying, I asked, how high do you think I can get in this organization? And then it admits, he paused for a long time before <laughs> answering. Which, you know, in his mind, he's basically like, what can I say without getting fired, essentially? Like, yeah. what, what, what can I say without getting repercussions for telling the scion of the horrible family that owns this thing he's a no, fucking none idiot? None of wanted to run the paper, or, yeah. right? <sighs> it's beautiful. Just so amazing. When I love to, at the end, he even says like, uh, if you get to that position, you should probably have like a really good financial advisor around you, which is his way of basically telling him like, you're kind of a fucking idiot, so make sure that <laughs> yeah. somebody so else is there. You be the general
2: manager in name, but yeah. there need to be someone else doing uh, the work, <laughs> actually doing the work. Yeah,
1: yeah. I love, I, I just love this story of a guy rising through the ranks of his father's company, told as a bootstrap, like, a, like a scrappy uh, bootstrapping yeah, story.
2: He, so yeah, good. dude, he. So, the yeah, that's the story he goes on to say, like, well, boy, the guy told me I'm kind of a dumbass, but he'll keep promoting me anyway. Mm. So, but look at me now. So I guess uh, I must have pulled up my bootstraps and really, really <laughs> got to work, really put my nose to the grindstone in my as a scion of the family uh, yeah. who owns the company, okay. Why do we have
1: a podcast when this
2: exists? Right. We should yeah. just play this interview over. <laughs> and over <again>. It's so <laughs> fucking good. It's not over though. Now yeah. you must be saying, like, you're asking yourself, yeah, but I mean, the proof's in the pudding, Greg. Like, hasn't the Seattle Times done incredibly well for itself over the course of Frank Blevins' uh, tenure as mm. publisher? Well, let's listen. Are you making
5: money?
4: No. <laughs> to hang on, hang on, hang on. We got to bring that back. Us,
5: what's the bottom line at the Seattle okay, Times? This Are up. you making money?
4: No. We're not making money thanks to unfunded pension liabilities, <laughs> which cost us $10, $12 million a year. If you take them out of the equation, we're on, on an operating basis, we're better than breaking even. We're making a little bit of money. Okay, <laughs> so. If you
3: take out of the equation? The agreed
4: out, upon wages. Want, yeah. <laughs> Well, listen, if
2: you, yeah, no, we're, no, we're not making money, but yes, if we didn't have to pay all of our current and previous employees, what we agreed to pay them Mm -hmm. while they were doing the work, then we'd be fine.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. If you take my company and you, uh retroactively pay me all the wages that I paid my employees, it'd be the most successful company in the world.
2: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> par none. Well, let's see. Uh, I think uh, local idiot Ross Reynolds has
4: a, another question for
5: him. Biggest challenge facing you today?
4: Biggest challenge is unfunded pension liabilities. <laughs> fucking guy. Huge this national fucking guy. Issue, especially, especially for mid-sized businesses like us. The man's got you, an issue. You know, you read about Boeing and big companies that, that have the same issue, but it's not death threatening to them but for companies our size it it's it's can be a life and death issue
5: frank blethen says that <laughs>
2: just the phrase unfunded pension liability mm-hmm. like uh, yeah he's got a fucking now this was 2005 um mm-hmm. so uh you know uh you know, I'm sure they're doing much better now.
1: Yeah. And definitely also in 2005, the problem with newspapers was pensions and not the fact that just newspapers were dying all over.
2: <laughs> whatever,
1: yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah.
2: But, you know, well, I mean, I'm sure he's not wrong. I'm sure if they didn't have to pay their employees, yeah, they like retroactively any- dock their, all their employees pay through all the hours and years they ever worked to back to minimum wage. Yeah. They'd be the most successful company of all time. So mm-hmm. they're, so they're Brian. Yeah. <laughs> Oh shit. That interview is fucking gold. Yeah, I agree, Brian. Um that's a number one good stuff. You can check out uh Ross Reynolds' uh ongoing work, I assume, on KOW. Um if that is uh, you know, if you still listen to public radio, which if, obviously you should not. <laughs> yeah, and
1: if the unfunded pension liabilities at kow haven't tanked the organization yet.
2: Yeah, yeah, they do everywhere. God everywhere. No, yeah, that this asshole probably has a pension. What a fucking Prick to, to do an interview like that, you know?
1: Well, the big thing is, is that, like...
2: No solidarity with his fellow journalists. Exactly. You know, no, just tell the guy to shut the fuck up.
1: Well, that, and I just love the idea of one media organization doing a simp piece for another media organization, <laughs> which is very The funny. news! Yeah. Now, in Frank's defense, it's not like you need a pension when you retire. If you're ever short of money, just go to the newspaper that your family owns and ask for a loan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good call.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Very common mistake people make not asking.
2: Yeah. For that yeah. <laughs> it's like people from communist countries talking to Americans being like, why don't you just live on the land? The government gives your family forever.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, Why would you choose to be homeless when the state gives you a house? I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, holy uh, shit. My God, what a fucking piece of shit.
2: Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> so, dear listener, um, you why, why should you care who, what how big an asshole, uh, self-deluded fuckwad Frank Blovin Jr. is? Well, we told you he's the publisher of the Seattle Times. Now, you know those awful Edboard turds, the Seattle Times editorial board turds we read to you regularly? Colin, why don't you read us the Edboard Board masthead and tell us exactly who... Uh, Supposedly so who puts their name on those uh to the extent that they do it all?
0: Sure. So the Seattle Times editorial board is editor Kate Riley, Frank A. blethen Briar, du- <laughs> Briar, Briar du- Dudley Briar Dudley, God
3: Briar Dudley. You can't <laughs> make that up. <laughs> That's
2: not a real person. <laughs> Shut the fuck <laughs> up. Colin, <laughs> stop fucking with us. <laughs> Briar Dudley. Oh my God! So. It's just, that sounds like a an an acquaintance and contemporary of Ambrose J. Hogue, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Jennifer Hemmingson, Mark Higgins, Derek Nunnally, and William K. Bleden.
2: Must uh, be one of the cousins. Yeah,
1: yeah, just stacked
2: up on there. Oh, my God. Yeah. So um, does Frank actually write these? No, probably not. Does Do any of the eight people on here? Yeah, probably one one or two of them are the people who probably actually write them after. And they just get badgered throughout the week by phone calls from the others, including the two mm-hmm. 11s about what's on their mind. And most of it is probably like bullshit. Like this waiter was was rude to me at this <laughs> restaurant or uh, I don't like. Uh, where the stop sign is placed on this corner yeah. or <laughs> like shit like that. And they just pray the whole week through that one of them comes with some, up with a grievance
1: that's uh, equally stupid, but a little more epic, you know? Mm. Well, and basically <clears throat> like what we've seen is a nice little bit of symmetry in that, yeah, Frank Blevins is absolutely doing that, but he's too lazy to write it. Where is his grandfather Alden Blevins? was you started the paper was a different soul because that's exactly what the paper was for him. Yeah. Was these are the people who slighted me this week. uh uh-huh. <laughs> You know? And uh, you know, I guess it's just not much has changed over the several times. <laughs> I guess that's where we're going with that.
0: The science of eugenics is still going strong with these uh, examples of fine genes and stock and breeding. The Blevin <laughs> Superman family.
2: Yeah, yeah the Blevin C student Superman <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, uh, man.
2: Well, the imposter syndrome publisher how Frank Blevin rose to the top of the Seattle Times on KOW uh, okay so Colin uh, what's the ed board got for us this, well, is, this is becoming a long one guys but we wanted to do a real blowout on the Seattle Times we've been promising you know some good like Blevin freak material um, <laughs> and now it only seems fitting to wrap it up with you know an, something direct from the Blevins mouth
0: <laughs> that's right so i think that brian found this one but it's a very recent editorial from our friends at the seattle times editorial board from and christmas
1: eve actually. from
0: christmas eve 12 p.m the title is trim the tree with 2020s local heroes and they spared no expense no expense here
2: a good year-end
0: look back countdown i love it i love this stuff mm-hmm well, yes, we love it. And we especially love that they got David Horsey out of the barn and they had, they put a pe- they put some markers and a pencil in that Horsey's mouth and some art was produced, which if you haven't seen this yet, is pretty amazing. There are action figure essential workers, which is just so lib-brained, I don't even know what to say.
1: The, the medical ones look to be in full despair. Yeah, they're just looking at you
0: like, please... Please help us, (laughs) please. Uh, There's uh, Chief Diaz driving a a very old police car. Um, It looks like there are people that deliver you your treats that say we got this on their shirt. Um, There's a BLM angel with a sign that says peaceful (laughs) protest.
1: I love that one because it implies that the Black Lives Matter protester featured here is dead. (laughs) (laughs) is has been killed.
0: Wow uh yeah there no yes the national guard which we yes we love them bill gates of course a golden ornament top center golden yeah.
1: or larger than everything top center
0: who fucking knows but this sucks
1: what a treat a horsey classic i'm gonna call you know what i'm put i'm saying it right now this is a david horsey classic Going to my going to my list
0: Spared another year from going to the glue factory. Wow. What a year it starts. We're only going to read a few of these. Uh, The Seattle Times editorial board's annual appreciation of people who improve our region could not help but focus on those who have helped us through the pandemic and are working for systemic societal change after the brutal killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Wow.
2: (laughs) Thank you for emoting through that sentence. Um, That is uh, that's some writing.
0: Their work, the work of all of us, sadly, is not done yet. But let's take a moment to appreciate the contributions of these individuals and organizations. All right. So, as I said, we picked well, me, our... F- yeah.
1: Oh, oh yeah. As I say, we, we should mention this is a listicle, right? So, we yeah. have our top 15, uh, in, like, heroes or whatever of the year. <laughs>
0: yeah. And they are numbered, which I guess does imply a ranking. So, read into that as you will. So, number one... Essential workers. <laughs> if, there's a, yeah. <laughs> if, if there's a silver lining in the pandemic, it may be our newfound appreciation of essential workers. Well
2: uh, telling on yourself a little there, <laughs> homies. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. We thought of all of these people as dog shit <laughs> in 2019. <laughs> lower than lower than snakes <laughs> by the criminal element who who the, the good help we can't find. hmm
0: Well, now that they keep us healthy and make food available, that's...
1: <laughs> My mom does that. <laughs>
0: the treats must flow. <laughs> <laughs> and keep the lights from doctors and nurses to teachers and police. Which, <laughs> wait a minute. And farm workers and which, supermarket which, checkers. Which one of those is not like the others? <laughs> and Seattle Times general managers. <laughs> And host of The Conversation on KUOW. They're all heroes this year. All right. Uh,
1: A little upset they didn't put podcasters in the essential workers category. Yeah, pretty fucked
0: up. I mean, California did. Did, I don't think we ever talked about that. (laughs) Hell yeah. Podcasting is essential.
1: That is true. Well, I do love that we're just going to continue. Everybody's made the joke, right, of like, no extra pay, you just get to be called a hero. But I do like that we're going to continue this. Like, I think for the supermarket checkers, they only got even... Uh, like some of them got extra pay from like Krogers, I think gave extra pay to supermarket checkers, for like the first for like month. A couple of months, yeah. Yeah, like the first month of the pandemic, and they basically don't have to fuck themselves that they wanted to pay their rent, they come into work. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the death toll of like supermarket checkers was during the pandemic, but good times. We'll be you can read it in a book ten years from now.
2: Yeah, exactly. No one will care.
0: It is I know we've talked about this at length before, but it is so disgusting to frame all of these poor people that have to work. Mm-hmm. They have basically no choice as heroes. Yeah. Uh, no, so well,
1: that joke. too... And I haven't met anybody that works as like a nurse or anything who isn't like furious, disgusted with how all this shit's been handled and everything. But it's weird how they're... They're heroic enough to be called heroes in your paper, but not to be asked about how awful this whole thing is going or anything like that, right? Not heroic. The Nurses' Union, not heroic enough to support Medicare for All like the Nurses' Union does, but, but, you know, they're heroes nonetheless.
0: A good hero should be seen and not heard, Brian.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Wow. True words, man.
0: Number two, election officials and volunteers. Hell yes. Holy shit. Okay. Skipping ahead to number four. And this one's going to hurt. We humbly submit, just oh so humbly submit, that the role of the local free pet press has, <laughs> been, <laughs> has never been more important in our democracy.
1: Yes, yes. They put themselves in the top five. <laughs> They're like, oh, if I was going to talk about heroes locally, I mean... I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm number one. You could say I'm number one. I would not say I'm number one. I humbly it, submit I'm number four.
0: Very ever so humbly. Whether print or online, broadcast, daily or weekly, journalists have worked hard to bring news of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, right. Fuck off, yeah. man. Bring Bringing news of the pandemic? Jesus Christ. Okay.
2: The, we the bring black... tidings of death and despair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's ringing it the bell.
1: Bring out your dad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If the only bla-
0: the Black Lives Matter protests and elections. Yeah, the only three things that happened in the whole year. Yep. Um, well, so Amari- I mean, so,
2: like they're all, they're doing terrible coverage of all of those things. So.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: basically, yeah. They had one good article about the pandemic that they wrote in March and have not done anything good since. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: Amari Salisbury, a Seattle-based citizen journalist with Converge Media, was active in documenting Seattle protests.
1: But, I like that basically in order to get themselves out of this, uh, we just basically did a whole self-congratulations right here. It's like, uh, name somebody who doesn't work for us. <laughs> and again, Amari Salisbury, uh, congratulations. Also, uh, don't come looking over here for a job. Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can continue to be independent over there.
0: <laughs> Number nine. What list would be of heroes would be complete without? Little Billy Gates. <laughs> now orphaned Billy Gates as of this year Yep, one of the world's most generous
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs>
3: little orphan Billy
0: oh, little orphan Billy <laughs>
4: little orphan Billy oh, God. Oh, please sir <laughs> can I have some
0: more may I have another billion <laughs> most generous philanthropist rose to the global health crisis in extraordinary ways The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation quickly pivoted to pandemic response early this year, helping accelerate vaccine development and coordinate deployment.
2: Uh, Coordinate deployment, create a system by which we can smile and nod at press conferences and effectively justify why it's going to be completely unequally spread around the world. That developing countries are just going to be fucked for years yeah um uh, the- why, and to uphold mostly to uphold uh i p law so that no you know no one will be allowed under an international law or treaty to produce these vaccines, yeah, and people uh, should without uh you know, uh, generic versions is what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah. And people should go back to our Thanksgiving extravaganza. I mean, go back as many times as you want as often as you want, but should go back and listen to the segment on Bill Gates. where we actually go over this about how, uh, if you are living in the third world, you are going to get a vaccine at best in 2024. That's a best case scenario, uh, because of the Gates foundation. <laughs> so, uh, enjoy that. And, uh, yeah, fuck Bill Gates.
2: Well, to be fair, I think, you're gonna, it's going to be that way because of global neoliberal capitalism. Yeah. The Gates Foundation is providing the gloss on here that shows, yeah. look, this is the work. This is they're showing their homework. Well, they and are. They're like, look, we're doing the work. Yeah. We've done all the deals. This is the best we could do. This is yeah. so it's not like we are just sitting around and it's a catastrophe. This is the plan. It's working. So shut up. They're um, also a
1: critical foot soldier <laughs> in that. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, and again, we should not be venerating people with lots of money doing the role of the state without any accountability. Yeah. Just let that be said. Yes. Disease modeling from Gates-funded experts in Seattle also emerged as an invaluable tool for states, federal governments, and others, apparently to just let everyone yeah. die.
1: Yeah, as I say, that's why the U.S. has handled the COVID crisis so well. Thanks, Bill.
0: That's <laughs> I, wild. I, I d-
1: whatever the intentions of any of these like major figures in the U.S. public health response, of which inexplicably Bill Gates is one of them, Uh, just like Dr. Fauci and all these other fucking losers, whatever their quote-unquote intentions were or any of that shit, they are fucking failures. Colossal fucking failures. The fact that anybody would applaud them or sing happy birthday to them outside their office shows (laughs) just how defeated this fucking country is. Just the, the level of failure of this country in the COVID crisis is indescribable. And the fact that anybody that was in charge is coming out of this with anything less than being like publicly executed is insane.
0: Amen. Uh, Moving on to number 10 here and elsewhere, peaceful protesters inspired by George Floyd's killing are forcing an overdue racial reckoning. Whilst, <laughs> while some protests, peaceful
1: protesters. So I wonder what, what about the other ones?
0: Well, I think we're about to hear about that. While some protests devolved into riots and lately Sophomoric vandalism. That doesn't negate the urgent need to address police brutality and racism in the criminal justice system. In Washington, that's led to numerous policy changes, including legislative proposals to increase police accountability statewide.
1: Yeah, and of course, as anybody who uh, listens to the show knows, we've read several Sale Time's Edboard Board pieces as well as Danny West neat pieces uh, where they say the exact opposite about the police needing more money, <laughs> like all this kind of stuff. Also, would be crazy if uh, this idea of supporting police accountability would get completely contradicted within this, o- this very list. But I guess we'll just have to wait and see if that
0: happens. <laughs> uh, skipping ahead to number 13. In one of the most difficult periods facing the Seattle Police Department, Acting Chief Adrian Diaz stepped up admirably to fill the vacancy created by Chief Carmen Best's departure. Best retired early after the city council undercut her with punitive, ill-conceived budget cuts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so we've gone from, uh, you know, look, eh, police accountability, big thing we all got to work for, to immediately criticizing any effort <laughs> any real effort <laughs> at it
2: whatsoever, right? Also, props to Chief Diaz for, you know, stepping up and taking that promotion and pay raise. Like, yeah, exactly.
1: must <laughs> a, a hero. That must have, entering that new tax bracket must have been a difficult choice for him. Whatever.
0: Yeah, it's going to be hard later when he has to uh, decide which kids to kill and which ones to let live. But um, oh, he's he's been promoted out of that job.
2: All he has to do now is help cover up those deaths. <laughs> yeah, basically. Shield no, I, I his mean, officers from
1: uh, from prosecution. Yeah.
0: I mean, when he graduates from this, like this yes, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, it's a new job. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, well, that too, I mean, yeah, Colin, you're exactly right because Carmen best also showed, I mean, something that actually is kind of unique for a police chief that just like a lot of politicians, you can get a real big paycheck job afterwards. Now, a lot of like former police chiefs will get uh, jobs as uh, consultants and whatever, but that's usually just getting tossed from city to city and I'm sure they, none of them are starving or anything. Uh, but consultants Be- to, to city governments and yeah. police departments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Easy money. To, easy, to the public sector. Yeah, easy paychecks. But Carmen Bass really reached up and got that gold ring. Like, she she really showed, like, no, man, you can turn this into private sector, you know, real big dollars.
0: Diaz quickly reorganized the department to increase patrol staffing amid plunging budgets and morale.
1: And combined- uh, was it a 1%? Cut to the budget, I believe, just is what ultimately fucking, happened. Um, one to two percent, something like command
2: that. level pay. Yeah, and yeah. they just fucking they they just got their <laughs> fucking five point four million dollars in overtime for, in over overtime, in yeah. over budget overtime approved. Yeah, before this was published. Yeah. So what the fuck
1: are you talking about? Yeah. And again, the the like one percent cut to their budget too. It's even one of those things that, outside of demands to defund police might have happened anyways just because we're in a period of, like, vast economic contraction and the city just has no money. The
2: city was proposing that before the fucking,
1: yeah, Yeah, before anything popped off. It's the kind of things that always happen when austerity budgets go through. Now, the police will get a 1% cut and everybody else will get a 50% cut. But, you know, I mean, the the level they're funded at, you know, when the economy contracts, they can't be funded at that level forever, right? So, but yeah, uh, you know, thanks. Thanks, Seattle Times.
0: Well, he's also committed to a thoughtful reimagining of policing.
1: End of paragraph. Yeah. Whatever the fuck that means. Shut the fuck up. Uh, He reimagined policing by doing a mass homeless encampment sweep right before Christmas, just as Carmen Best did her entire career, just as the previous police chief did, just as the previous police chief did by that. like uh, Again, they're writing this in the wake of a major police action that part of the reason people were so pissed off about it was it was a... I mean, besides being heartless, cold, despite you know the fact that's probably going to kill people, uh, the other thing was it was a direct fuck you to the city council, a direct fuck you to anybody who was in the defund SPD movement, basically saying nothing's going to change, motherfuckers. <laughs> like everything stays the same.
0: Moving on to number fifteen: COVID testing, jobless claims, food hmm. banks wildfires, election security, protests. Washington National Guard members have been coming to the aid of state residents and state agencies what? as never before during <laughs> <Yes>. the 2020 <laughs> pandemic.
1: I mean, just this is the wild card they threw at us. This wow. Year. Cause it's
2: funny. Cause I remember a very specific interaction with yeah. the Washington National Guard and that's seeing them deployed in the street. Uh, At at this at the evening after the first uh, SPD riot downtown. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I didn't see them doing any uh, guarding of election boxes. I don't remember recall seeing them uh, doing any wildfire fighting or uh, COVID testing. I've been tested multiple times for COVID now. I don't, don't recall seeing a National Guard member there ever. I do distinctly remember them carrying file cabinets out of the uh, precinct Yeah, loading a truck for <laughs> loading, SPD. Yeah, because they're all too fucking lazy to do their own work abandoning the precinct. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Stealing,
2: uh, looting yeah. the precinct, as yeah. we later learn. Yeah, yeah. yeah when uh, That shit's been found.
1: Yeah, when, uh, like, half of SPD just stole a bunch of guns <laughs> out of the fucking precinct. Computers, all that kind of shit. Yeah. Weird.
0: Very weird. Well, we do love our cops and our law enforcement. <laughs> military they are important their extra hands <laughs> brains and muscles have been helping put out fires actual yeah
2: yeah yeah it was their brains yeah
1: yeah That that's why they allowed the spd the <laughs> dumbest people in the city to boss them around and make them carry carry file Incredible. And Incredible. Yeah.
0: mischievous and virtual as in hacking of the jobless claim system
1: Wait, what did, wait, hold on. What did the National Guard do about the hack of I, the unemployment system? I don't
0: know none of these are the, links.
1: The this is
2: one thing that I was at least aware of before this is that the National Guard was mobilized to mm. staff up uh yeah, unemployment. unemployment security department. What did
1: they do so about the hack? The, the
2: their part the main response <laughs> the, to the hack They were in the building. Was a need for even further expansion <laughs> of staff to more carefully To, like, actually, with a person, look at each fucking claim. Yeah, so they're in the building.
1: So they're
2: they're responding to it and then they're doing the actual, Mm -hmm. like, work of
1: reviewing claims. Hilariously, uh, the Seattle Times had an editorial this week uh, essentially tut-tutting the unemployment bureau for this hack, right? And not doing enough in their mind to uh, stop this from happening in the future. And they do mention that they've only recovered, like, a third of the money or whatever from the hack. So cool. Uh, good oh, yeah, you've never seen that shit. Again. Yeah. That's okay. My name is Shane Gober.
0: Very, very cool. And there was one special mention here to Seattle storm just tucked in there. Number 14. It mentions <laughs> that this is their fourth national WNBA championship win. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course theirs is the shortest entry. Yeah. And the, the most trivialized, um, well, among I, I also
1: I like that if you were to make a you know hamburger here, Adrian, you know, the police chief is the top bun, the national guard is the bottom bun, and crushed in between them is the patty, which is Seattle Storm. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah, that rules. Awesome, cool.
2: Well, that's been our. 2020, uh, celebration of the Seattle times, the Blevins, their freak progeny. Thanks for listening on the Patreon. Uh, you can check out, uh, the third installment of the, of Brian and Justin's Harry Truman and the Cold War series. That'll be coming sometime later in the week. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, The third installment. The other two are up there. And the previous one about the 44 Democratic Convention, that's also up there too. Uh, Check all that out. Very good. They're really awesome.
1: It's a really great series about how much America blows ass. (laughs) Well, don't worry. In this third and final installment, we talk about the Korean War, and I think it really turns things around.
2: (laughs) Yeah. America America really, uh, you know, does its best work on the Korean peninsula. The original mm. forever war? <laughs> yeah, no shit, right? <laughs> Check all that. out Happy New Year ever No, it's not. No. This it yeah. sucks.
1: Don't have a happy New Year. It's going to Yeah. It's all downhill from here. We're all Next year's going to suck. Stop yeah. saying uh, goodbye 2020. It sucked. Uh guess what? 2021 probably going to be worse. So, get ready. Yeah. Uh no one listening to this uh is going to get the
2: vaccine in 2021. Sorry. Yeah. Uh,
3: if you listen to this, you are Except the for of Best. this
2: town. Carmen Bass <laughs> and
1: Jenny Durkin are two yeah. original listeners. Yeah. We'll get it. Our, the
2: rest our, of us are our, our secret biggest patrons. <laughs> um yeah. You pieces of shit are not getting that virus. <laughs> no. That vaccine. Okay. Yeah. Uh thanks everybody for, for a beautiful 2020. Thanks for listening. As always, we love you. Good night. Good night.